Welcome to a reading of The Badge of Popery, Musical Instruments in Public Worship by R.J. George from his Lectures in Pastoral Theology. Produced by Stillwater's Revival Books, please visit our website at www.swrb.com. Read by W.J. Mancaro. Distinctive Principles It is necessary that, in the course of instruction in the theological seminary, a place shall be found for the discussion of what we call our distinctive principles. If these principles are to be maintained, they must be well understood, firmly believed, and sincerely loved by the ministry. In a former series, we reached the conclusion that the minister is to be a witness, and, having indicated the scope of his testimony in general, it is fitting to bring to view the scriptural grounds upon which our testimony rests, insofar as it is peculiar to our own body. I begin, therefore, with questions which concern scriptural worship. Is the use of instrumental music in the worship of God authorized? Part 1. That which is not commanded in the worship of God is forbidden. 1. This is the teaching of Scripture. It would be strange indeed if the God who will not give his glory to another, nor his praise to graven images, should have left to ignorant and sinful men to invent the manner of his worship, or that having himself instituted the ordinances of praise, he should permit men to mix the imaginations of their own corrupt hearts with those divine appointments. Such a supposition is unreasonable. But God has not left himself without a witness on this subject. Numbers 15, verses 39 and 40. Remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them, and that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a-whoring that ye may remember and do all my commandments. Exodus 25, verse 40, And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Compare this with Hebrews 8, verse 5, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. This divine command extended to the most minute particulars in the construction of the tabernacle, the pins and loops and caches and tenons and sockets. Nothing was left to human invention. The garments of the priests who were to offer, the very ingredients of which the incense was to be compounded, and every particular as to the sacrificial offerings from the horns and hooves to the fat tail, as the revision has it, and from the skin without to the call that is above the liver within. Everything was appointed, and the penalty for any departure from the divine order was that the offender should be cut off from among his people. Such was the Old Testament worship, and God is not less jealous over the new. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Number two, this principle is confirmed by striking examples. First, by the death of Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. 
The revision makes it plainer. It reads, which he had not commanded them. That which is not commanded is forbidden. Quote, and there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Secondly, this principle is confirmed by the death of Uzzah for touching the ark. That Uzzah should be struck dead for touching the ark to steady it when the oxen shook it, as the scripture says, seems like a fearful punishment for an unintentional offense. The only explanation offered is, quote, The Lord our God made a breach upon us for that we sought him not after the due order. See also number 16 for Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. 1 Samuel 8, Saul offering sacrifice. 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 21, Uzzah officiating as a priest. Excuse me, Uzziah officiating as a priest. Thirdly, this principle is confirmed since it was a fundamental principle of the Calvinistic Reformation. Your study of church history will make you familiar with the distinction between Luther and Calvin on this point. Luther held that whatever is not forbidden in the word of God is permitted. Hence, he allowed the use of images, pictures, organs, and many ritualistic observances. Calvin taught that it is not a sufficient warrant for introducing anything into the worship of God to say that the Bible does not forbid it. It must have the appointment of the divine word. This principle was accepted by all the churches which adopted the Reformation in the Calvinistic form. This makes a wide distinction as to purity of worship between the Lutheran and Reformed churches. Fourthly, this principle, the principle again is that which is not commanded in the worship of God is forbidden, is the doctrine of the Westminster Standard. Larger Catechism question 108 says, The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word. Also, the disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship and according to each one's place and calling, removing it. Larger Catechism, question 109. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and in any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. All superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. All neglect, contempt, hindering or opposing the worship of and ordinances which God hath appointed. Shorter Catechism, question 51. The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Speaking of this, the late Professor Gerardo said, Quote, but whatever others may think or do, Presbyterians cannot forsake this principle without the guilt of defection from their own venerable standards and from the testimony sealed by the blood of their fathers. Among the principles that the Reformers extracted from the rubbish of corruption and held up to light again, none was more comprehensive, far-reaching, and profoundly reforming than this. It struck at the root of every false doctrine and practice and demanded the restoration of the true. Germany has been infinitely the worse because of Luther's failure to apply it to the full. Calvin enforced it more fully. 
John Knox stamped it upon the heart of the Scottish Reformation, and it constituted the glory of the English Puritans. Alas, that it is passing into decadence in the Presbyterian churches of England, Scotland, and America. What remains but that those who still see it and cling to it as something dearer than life itself should continue to utter, however feebly, their unchanging testimony to its truth. It is the Acropolis of the Church's liberties, the Palladium of her purity. That gone, nothing will be left but to strain its gaze toward the dawn of the millennial day. Then we are entitled to expect that a more thoroughgoing and glorious reformation will be effected than that which has blessed the church and the world since the magnificent propagation of Christianity by the labors of the inspired apostles themselves. Subhead 2. Instrumental music was divinely appointed to be used in connection with the sacrificial offerings in the temple. We have established the principle that whatever is not commanded in the worship of God is forbidden. It follows from this that it is a sin to bring into divine worship anything that it would not be a sin to leave out. I'll repeat that for emphasis. It follows from the principle that whatever is not commanded in the worship of God is forbidden. It follows that it is a sin to bring into divine worship anything that it would not be a sin to leave out. It is agreed by all that instrumental music was used in connection with the temple services. It was introduced by such a distinct authority of God that the failure to employ it would have been an act of disobedience to God. On this point, Professor Gerardo says, quote, Although David was a lover of instrumental music and himself performed on the harp, it was not until some time after his reign had begun that this order of things was changed, and, as we shall see, changed by divine command. 1 Chronicles 28, verses 11 through 13, and verse 19. Quote, then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch, and of the houses thereof, and of the treasuries thereof, and of the upper chambers thereof, and of the inner parlors thereof, and of the place of the mercy seat, and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit, of the courts of the house of the Lord, and of all the chambers round about. Also, for the courses of the priests and the Levites, and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and for all the vessels of service in the house of the Lord. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. Compare with this, Second Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 25 through 30. And he, Hezekiah, set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. For so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also, with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. From a comparison of these passages, Professor Gerardo draws the following conclusions, which seem to be warranted. One, 
Instrumental music never was divinely warranted as an element in the tabernacle worship until David received inspired instructions to introduce it as preparatory to the transition which was about to be effected to the more elaborate ritual of the temple. 2. When the temple was to be built and its order of worship to be instituted, David received a divine revelation in regard to it, just as Moses had concerning the tabernacle with its ordinances. 3. This direct revelation to David was enforced upon Solomon and upon the priests and Levites by inspired communications touching the same subject from the prophets Gad and Nathan. 4. Instrumental music would not have been constituted an element in the temple worship had not God expressly authorized it by his command. Quote, the public worship of the tabernacle up to the time when it was to be merged into the temple had been a stranger to it, says Professor Gerardo, and so great an innovation could have been accomplished only by divine authority. God's positive enactment grounded the propriety of the change. Close quote. Three, there is no divine warrant for instrumental music except in connection with the typical services of the temple. One, there are two kinds of services mentioned in the Old Testament. First, the typical and temporary ceremonies. Two, the permanent services of worship. Two, the instruments of music were employed only in connection with the typical or typical and temporary services of the temple. First Chronicles chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, 30 and 31. Now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years and upward, and their number by their poles, man by man, was 30 and 8,000, of which 20 and 4,000 were to set forth forward the work of the house of the Lord, and 6,000 were officers and judges. Moreover, 4,000 were porters, and 4,000 praised the Lord with the instruments which I made, said David, to praise therewith and to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord, and likewise at evening. Very evidently this was in connection with the morning and evening sacrifices. Quote, And to offer all burnt sacrifices unto the Lord in the Sabbaths, and the new moons, and on the set feasts, by number, according to the order commanded unto them, continually before the Lord. Second Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 27 and 28. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. See also Second Chronicles 5, verses 11 through 14. It cannot be shown that the instruments were ever employed in the temple, except in connection with these temporary and typical services. 3. The services of the synagogue were neither typical nor temporary, and in these no instruments of music were employed. We cannot stop to trace the history of the synagogue worship, nor is this necessary, because it is universally admitted that it consisted of reading and expounding the scriptures, singing of psalms and prayers, not one of which services is in its nature either typical or temporary. No advocate of instrumental music is bold enough to claim that it had a place in the ancient synagogue. The Reverend R.J. Breckenridge of the Presbyterian Church, one of the most renowned theologians of his day, in an article written in 1856 in opposition to the introduction of instruments into the worship of the Presbyterian Church, says, quote, As to the synagogue system, that system after which both in its model and in its objects the Christian Church was confessedly and undeniably formed, 
It allowed no instrumental music. Probably in the tens of thousands of Jewish synagogues which have covered the earth during the whole of the career of that wonderful people, not one can be found in which a congregation of enlightened Jews who adhered to the institutions of their religion and their race allowed any instruments of music, much less an organ, to form any part of their system of the public worship of God. Close quote. The phrase, much less an organ, is eloquent of the writer's feeling. Professor J.R.W. Sloan, than whom we have had no man of broader or more accurate scholarship, in an article published in Our Banner, 1880, page 265, says, quote, The New Testament worship was modeled on the synagogue worship, and in that worship, instruments were not used. At all events, this is the opinion of the very highest authorities we have. I know of no authority affirming that they were, and I do not believe that it is a point that admits of any argument even. Close quote. Professor Gerardo says the writers who have most carefully investigated Jewish antiquities and have written learnedly and elaborately in regard to the synagogue concur in showing that its worship was destitute of instrumental music. Quote. The conclusion is inevitable that instrumental music was introduced by the authority of God in connection with the typical and temporary services of the temple and never was used in the worship of the synagogue at all. 4. There is no scriptural authority for the introduction of instrumental music into the worship of the New Testament church. 1. The typical temple service with which it was connected was completely abolished. We have seen that the divine war for instrumental music was clear and definite, but its use was restricted to this part of the temple service. If anything is made explicit beyond all controversy, it is that the whole service with which the use of instruments was connected has been abolished. And not only was it abolished by the teaching of the New Testament, but God in his providence put an end to it by raising the temple until not one stone was left upon another and by preventing its rebuilding. The divine authority in abolishing that whole ceremonial service of which the use of instruments in worship was a part is as clear and explicit as the divine authority instituting that worship. Secondly, the New Testament worship was patterned after the synagogue worship. This is a point on which there is no difference of opinion. The services consisted of prayer, reading the scriptures, exposition of the scriptures, and the singing of psalms. No church historian, so far as I know, suggests even the possibility, excuse me, probability, suggests even the probability of the use of instruments, either in the synagogue or in the New Testament apostolic church. See Fisher's History of the Christian Church, page 65. Schaff's History of the Apostolic Church, pages 560 to 565. Kurtz's History of the Christian Church, volume 1, page 70. Thirdly, the New Testament contains not one word authorizing their introduction. As the authority under which they were introduced in the temple worship has expired by its own limitation, if they are to find a place in the New Testament worship, it must be by divine reappointment. No such warrant can be found in the New Testament. Fourthly, the use of such instruments is wholly out of harmony with the nature of New Testament worship. Man dwelling in the flesh has always felt the need of something tangible as a means of approach to God, who is a pure spirit. Hence the disposition to worship God through images. To meet this necessity until Christ came, God instituted material forms of worship. He appointed a holy place, the temple of Jerusalem 
a priesthood to come between the people and God, holy sacrifices to be offered by holy men in the holy place. And as a suitable accompaniment to all this materialistic and carnal worship, God appointed the use of instrumental music. It had a relation to such a service that it could not have to a purely spiritual worship. Now all this has changed. The antitype has come. Christ, the substance, has been exhibited. Man's need for something on which the mind can stay itself in its approach to God has been supplied. All these material objects which stood between the worshiper and God have been swept aside, and the whole infinite distance between man and God is filled by the one mediator, Christ. There is room for no other. Bishop Pyle says, quote, to bring into the Christian church holy places, sanctuaries, altars, priests, sacrifices, gorgeous vestments, and the like, is to dig up that which has been long buried and to turn to candles for light under the noonday sun. Close quote. Fifthly, the use of instrumental music is a corruption of the spiritual worship of the New Testament. It is not enough to say it is out of harmony with it. It is a positive hindrance and destroys its purity. First, because it breaks through the limitation which God placed upon its use. The word corruption means to break together. When instrumental music was confined within the limits of its divine appointment as a part of a ceremonial, typical, materialistic dispensation, the worship was pure and acceptable to God. But when it breaks through these limitations and thrusts itself into the spiritual worship of the new dispensation, then indeed it becomes corruption. Secondly, because it tends to draw the mind of the worshiper away from God, who is the object of worship, and from Christ, who is the only way of approach to God. Before Christ came the temple, the sacrifices, the ritualistic worship assisted the worshiper by directing his mind toward Christ, of whom all these things were types and shadows. But since Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the very same things which in a former dispensation led to him now lead the mind of the worshiper away from him. For instance, the priest, the altar, and the sacrifice aided the Old Testament worshiper to see Christ by faith. But now when the church of Rome thrusts the priest and the altar and the sacrifice of the mass between the worshiper and God, she shuts out from him the true vision of Christ. So an instrumental music, which was an aid to the sensuous worship of the Old Testament, is intruded into the spiritual worship of the New Testament, with which it has no harmony, and to the very spirit of which it is antagonistic, it draws the mind away from Christ and corrupts the worship of God. Historical argument against instrumental music in the worship of God. Firstly, Instrumental music was not used in the worship of the Apostolic Church. Dr. J.R.W. Sloan, in the article referred to in the last lecture, says, quote, The practice of the Apostolic and Primitive Church is simply a matter of historical fact. Instruments of music were not used, so that we have that which is equivalent to a command, a proved example, and not one word on the other side. Close quote. That's from Our Banner, 1880, page 265. The testimony furnished by McClintock and Strong's Encyclopedia is particularly weighty. There are two articles on the subject. One is signed R.H., one of our own ministers, the late Robert Hutchinson, who was always recognized as an able and scholarly writer. The other article is signed J.H.W., who is Professor J.H. Warman, A.M., of Lawrence University, Wisconsin. He is an ardent advocate 
advocate of the use of instrumental music in worship, as appears from his article in the organ, on the organ in volume 7, page 426. Yet, on this subject, Professor Warman says, quote, The Greeks, as well as the Jews, were wont to use instruments as accompaniments in their sacred songs. The converts to Christianity, accordingly, must have been familiar with this mode of singing. Yet, it is generally believed that the primitive Christians failed to adopt instrumental music in their religious worship. The word saline, which the Apostle uses in Ephesians 5, verse 19, has been taken by some critics to indicate that they sang with such accompaniments. The same is supposed by some to be intimated by the golden harps which John and the Apocalypse put, put into the hands of the four and twenty elders. But if this be the correct inference, it is strange indeed that neither Ambrose, nor Basil, nor Christosom, in the noble encomiums, which they severally pronounced upon music, make any mention of instrumental music. Basil indeed expressly condemns it as ministering to the depraved passions of men, and must have been led to this con condemnation because some had gone astray and borrowed this practice from the heathens. Quote. Dr. Killen, in his book, The Ancient Church, Its History, Doctrine, Worship, and Constitution, traced for the first 300 years, gives the following decisive testimony. After speaking of the typical and ceremonial worship of the temple, he adds, quote, The worship of the synagogue was more simple. Its officers had indeed trumpets and cornets, with which they published their sentences of excommunication and announced the new year, the fasts, and the Sabbath. But they did not introduce instrumental music into their congregational services. The early Christians followed the example of the synagogue, and when they celebrated the praises of God in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19, according to some, the psalms were divided into these three classes, their melody was the fruit of their lips. For many centuries after this period, the use of instrumental music was unknown to the church. Close quote. That is from Killen's Ancient Church, page 216. Professor Girardo says, quote, The church historians make no mention of instrumental music in their accounts of the worship of the early church. Mosheim says not a word about it. Neander makes the simple remark, quote, Church psalmody also passed over from the synagogue into the Christian church. Close quote. Bingham, deservedly held in high repute as a writer of Christian antiquities and as a member of the Anglican Church, certainly not prejudiced in favor of Puritan views, says, I should here have put an end to this chapter, but that some readers would be apt to reckon it an omission, that we have taken no notice of organs and bells among the utensils of the Church. But the true reason is that there were no such things in use in the ancient churches for many ages. Music in churches is as ancient as the apostles, but instrumental music... Not so! Exclamation mark. That's from Bingham's Works, Volume 3, page 137. After these quotations, Gerardo adds, These men were historians and could not record a fact which did not exist. Part 2. Instrumental music and religious worship was not introduced for many centuries after the Christian era. I will again quote from Professor Warman. Quote, the general introduction of instrumental music can certainly not be assigned to a date earlier than the 5th or 6th century. Yea, even Gregory the Great, who towards the end of the 6th century added greatly to the existing church, excuse me, to the existing church music, absolutely prohibited the use of instruments. Several centuries later, the introduction of the organ and sacred service gave a place to instruments as accompaniments for Christian song 
and from that time to this they have been freely used with few exceptions. The first organ is believed to have been used in the church service in the 13th century. Organs were, however, in use before this in the theater. Close quote. That's from McClintock and Strong, volume 6, page 759. Professor Gerardo says, quote, There is no evidence but the contrary to show that instrumental music was commonly introduced in the church until the 13th century. He also quotes Thomas Aquinas, 1250, as saying, quote, Our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God withal, that she may not seem to judaize. judaize. After quoting a long list of authorities, Gerardo concludes, let us pause a moment to notice the fact, supported by a mass of incontrovertible evidence, that the Christian church did not employ instrumental music in its public worship for 1,200 years after Christ. It proves what has been already shown from the New Testament scriptures, that the apostolic church did not use it in its public services. And surely the church ought now to be conformed to the practice of the apostles and of the churches whose usages they modeled according to the inspired direction of the Holy Ghost. Part 3. Instrumental music and worship was introduced in connection with the corruption and decline of the church. It came into general use in the 13th century. That ought to settle the question for students of church history. It was the period of the full sway of the papacy. It was at the darkest hour before the dawn. Professor Gerardo says, It deserves serious consideration, moreover, that notwithstanding the even accelerated drift toward corruption in worship as well as in doctrine, the Roman Catholic Church did not adopt this corrupt practice until about the middle of the 13th century. This is the testimony of Aquinas, who has always been esteemed by that church as a theologian of the first eminence, and who, of course, was acquainted with its usages. Part 4. The introduction of instrumental music, even in the Roman Catholic Church, was resisted by some of the holiest and best men. We have already had quotations from Gregory the Great, Valerium, and Thomas Aquinas. In addition to these, Cajetan is quoted as saying, quote, it is to be observed that the church did not use organs in Thomas's time. Whence, even to this day, the Church of Rome does not use them in the Pope's presence. And truly, it will appear that the musical instruments are not to be suffered in the ecclesiastical offices we meet together to perform for the sake of receiving internal instruction from God. And so much the rather are they to be excluded because God's internal discipline exceeds all human disciplines which rejected this kind of instruments. Close quote. You will be interested in the testimony of Erasmus, the great humanist reformer, who sought to reform the church without separating from it. He says, quote, We have brought into our churches a certain operose and theatrical music, such a confused, disorderly chattering of some words as I think was hardly ever heard in any of the Grecian or Roman theaters. The church rings with the noise of trumpets, pipes, and dulcimers, and human voices strive to bear apart with them. Men to run to church as to a theater, to have their ears tickled. And for this end, organ makers are hired with great salaries and a company of boys who waste all their time in learning these whining tones. It is certainly an argument of no small weight that instrumental music was so antagonistic to the pure spiritual worship of the New Testament church that it could find no admittance until the church was carnalized by the corruptions of Romanism. And even then it was resisted by the best men. Part 5. The church which during the Dark Ages retained their apostolic purity, never introduced instruments into the worship of God. 
Of these, the Waldensians are the most important. The history of this wonderful people by Reverend C.H. Strong shows that they observed the ordinances of psalm singing in its pure apostolic simplicity. Dr. Breckenridge makes the strong statement that, quote, the use or the refusal to use instrumental music in God's stated public worship during that long midnight from the establishment of popery until the Reformation in the various subdivisions of nominal Christianity throughout the world who were not subject to the papacy is an accurate attest as perhaps any other of the real condition of those sects. And whoever will inquire will see that whatever piety was in the world was mainly with those who disagreed with Rome on this subject, that is, instrumental music in worship. Part 6. The purest and most orthodox of the Reformation churches excluded instrumental music from the worship of God. The Zwinglians, the Calvinists, the Puritans, the Presbyterians, and the Covenanters were a unit in excluding instruments. And it is a remarkable fact that even the Church of England came within one of doing the same thing. Professor Warman says, In the English convocation held in 1562, in Queen Elizabeth's time, for settling the liturgy, the retaining of organs was carried only by a casting vote. That's from McClintock and Strong, volume 6, page 760. Hetherington's account is as follows. In the beginning of the year 1562, a meeting of the convocation was held in which the subject of further reformation was vigorously discussed on both sides. Among the alterations proposed was this, quote, that the use of organs be laid aside, unquote. When the vote came to be taken on these propositions, 43 voted for them and 35 against. But when the proxies were counted, the balance was turned, the final state of the vote being 58-4 and 59 against. Thus it was determined by a single vote, and that the proxy vote, and that was the proxy vote of an absent person who did not hear the reasoning that the prayer book should remain unimproved, that should, there should be no further reformation, that there should be no relief granted to those whose consciences felt aggrieved by the admixture of human inventions in the worship of God. Let me quote from Dr. Breckenridge. Quote, My fourth remark is that at the Reformation and ever since, those portions of the professing people of God who renounced and have continued to renounce most thoroughly and most tenaciously the corruptions of Rome on this subject are those sects and denominations which, out of all comparison with others, have been most orthodox, most faithful, and most alive to the glory of God. The next point I prefer to state in the words of this vigorous advocate of psalmody, Dr. Breckenridge. Point seven. Quote, Any change which has taken place since the Reformation in any of the Protestant denominations indicating a relapse toward Rome in the use of instrumental music in God's public worship will be found to have been uniformly attended in these denominations by other changes injurious to their spiritual condition, which, though not very obvious at first, have worked themselves out disastrously in every case. Close quote. Such a statement from such a source is well calculated to arrest attention. A careful study of the history of the Church will sustain the truth of the proposition. I can only add to this that the experiences of a sister Church in our own times painfully confirms the truth of this observation. Many of the most thoughtful and conscientious members of the United Presbyterian Church even among those who favor the use of the organ, admit that their church has practically abandoned her position on the exclusive use of a scripture psalmody and her testimony against secret orders. 
this historical argument, I have aimed to present nothing that is not well substantiated as to facts. It seems to me sufficient of itself to sweep away all the arguments that can be adduced in favor of the instrument, either as a divinely instituted and essential part of worship in the New Testament church, or even as an incident in worship, or an accompaniment to it. Instrumental Music in Worship and Our Church Standards The standards of the Covenanter Church embrace the following. The Confession of Faith, the Larger and Shorter Catechisms, the Form of Church Government, and the Directory for Worship. These are known as the Westminster Standards and are accepted by our Church as they were received by the Church of Scotland. In addition to these, we have the Declaration and Testimony of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, and our own church covenant entered into in 1871. It will be the aim of the present lecture first to show that the use of instrumental music and divine worship is opposed both to the letter and to the spirit of these standards, and then to close the discussion of the subject by more general arguments and a brief consideration of arguments in favor of the use of instruments. First, the use of instruments in the worship of God is contrary to our church standards. The question as to the teaching of the Westminster standards is an important one because many of the Presbyterian bodies professing to hold to these standards have introduced instruments into their worship, and also because, we having accepted these standards as agreeable unto and founded on the Scriptures, they are for us authoritative. Firstly, these standards embody the principle that what God has not commanded in his worship, he has forbidden. In the Confession of Faith, chapter 21, section 1, quote, The light of nature showeth that there is a God, who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good, and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, and with all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Secondly, in the Larger Catechism, question 108, 109, and the Shorter Catechism, question 52. These proofs were cited earlier. I will make only one quotation here. Quote, The sins forbidden in the Second Commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, or any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. All superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. Thirdly, the testimony. Chapter 24, section 1. God is to be worshipped by all his intelligent creatures in such a manner as he himself shall prescribe. And no sinner, and as no sinner, can have access unto him but in Christ Jesus. Divine revelation is the supreme standard by which all modes of worship must be regulated. Secondly, these standards specify the parts and modes of worship which have the divine warrant. First, the Confession of Faith, chapter 21, section 5. Quote, the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts 
of the ordinary religious worship of God. Besides, religious oaths and vows, solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. The Directory for Worship, last paragraph entitled, A Singing of Psalms. The Directory for Worship takes up the different institutions of worship as named in the Confession of Faith and directs how they are to be observed. In the praise service, under the title of, of Singing of Psalms, it says, quote, it is the duty of Christians to praise God publicly by singing of psalms together in the congregation and also privately in the family. In singing of psalms, the voice is to be tunably, tunably and gravely ordered, but the chief care must be to sing with understanding and with grace in the heart, making melody unto the Lord. And in the testimony, chapter 24, entitled of Christian Worship, the testimony in the first section of this chapter lays down the principle that, quote, divine revelation is the supreme standard by which all modes of worship must be regulated, and makes the following declaration, quote, singing God's praise is a part of public social worship in which the whole congregation should join. The book of Psalms, which are of divine inspiration, is well adapted to the state of this church and of every member in all ages, excuse me, state of the church, and of every member in all ages and circumstances. And these psalms, to the exclusion of all limitations and uninspired compositions, are to be used in social worship. Thirdly, instrumental music and worship not being included by these standards and that which is commanded must be included in that which is forbidden. This is self-evident, because if that which is not commanded is forbidden, and instruments are not commanded, then instruments are forbidden. On this our covenant is explicit. It says, after careful examination, having embraced the system of faith, order, and worship revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and summarized as to doctrine in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, and Reformed Presbyterian Testimony, and as to order and worship justly set forth in substance and outline in the Westminster Form of Church Government and Directory for Worship, we do publicly profess and own this as the true Christian faith and religion, and the system of order and worship appointed by Christ for his own house. And by the grace of God, we will sincerely and constantly endeavor to understand it more fully, to hold and observe it in its integrity, and to transmit the knowledge of the same to posterity. We solemnly reject whatever is known to us to be contrary to the word of God, our recognized and approved manuals of faith and order, and the great principles of the Protestant Reformation. It's from the Covenant of 1871, Section 2. The argument stands thusly. First, the standards of the Reformed Presbyterian Church expressly teach that all the institutions of divine worship and the modes of their observances are expressly set forth in the Holy Scriptures. Second, these standards name and particularize the several institutions appointed by Christ for the worship of God and describe the manner of their observance. Third, instrumental music has neither name nor place among these divine appointments. Fourth, the conclusion is imperative that instrumental music in worship is without authority from these standards as it and is contrary both to the letter and the spirit of their teaching. Once again, the proposition is the use of instruments in the worship of God is contrary to our church standards. Number four, this view is confirmed by all we know of the minds and purposes of the framers of these standards. Before the Assembly of Divines at Westminster began preparing the Directory for Worship, the Parliament had authoritatively adopted measures looking to the removal of organs from the Churches of England. Professor Gerardo gives the following quotation from the Acts of Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Quote, 
On the 20th of May, 1644, the commissioners from Scotland wrote to the General Assembly of their church and made the following statement, among others, quote, We cannot but admire the good hand of God and the great things done here already, particularly that the covenant, the foundation of the whole work, is taken, prelacy and the whole train thereof extirpated, the service book in many places forsaken, plain and powerful preaching set up, Many colleges in Cambridge provided with such ministers as are most zealous of the best reformation. Altars removed. The communion in some places given at the table with sitting. The great organs at Paul's and Peter's in Westminster taken down. Images and many other monuments of idolatry defaced and abolished. The chapel at Whitehall purged and reformed. And all by authority in a quiet manner at noonday without tumult." Gerardo also quotes from the Encyclopedia Britannica under the word organ. Quote, At the Revolution, most of the organs in England had been destroyed. Unquote. He then adds, quote, When therefore the assembly addressed itself to the task of forming a directory for worship, it found itself confronted by a condition of the churches of Great Britain in which the singing of psalms without instrumental accompaniment almost universally prevailed. In prescribing, consequently, the singing of psalms without making any allusion to the restoration of instrumental music, it must in all fairness be construed to specify the simple singing of praise as a part of public worship. Quote. Number two, the decisions of the assembly were controlled by the Puritan Presbyterians and the commissioners from the Church of Scotland. There is no question as to the position of the Presbyterian body, both in Scotland and in England, on this subject and the General Assembly, which formulated a form of church government in which Presbyterianism is set forth as of divine right, was morally certain to set forth a directory for worship from which instrumental music would be excluded. On this point, Dr. Breckenridge says, quote, It is contrary to the covenanted church standards of the Presbyterians to make such innovations and changes as these, and to make them in this manner. According to the faith of our church, clearly laid down, singing, is the proper scriptural and public mode of the praise of God, specially so called. And instrumental, mechanical, and artificial noises of machinery are not once alluded to, but are, by the very force of all the terms and definitions, excluded as any allowable part of God's public praise in the stated worship of his church. That all this is the fact, let anyone consult the whole spirit and the special definitions of our standards the testimonies of those who composed and those who have most honored them, and the constant faith and practice of the nations and churches that have received them. During the very sessions of the Westminster Assembly, which composed our standards in their present form, the Long Parliament passed an act, under advice of leading members of the Westminster Assembly, declaring the use of organs in churches to be a part of idolatrous worship, and ordering everyone to be removed. Close quote. Number three, instrumental music has had to fight its way into the churches holding the Westminster Standards. Professor Warman gives interesting testimony on this point. Quote, the Presbyterian churches of Scotland have made stout and continued resistance against the use of organs. In the Church of Scotland, the matter was discussed in connection with the use of an organ by the congregation of St. Andrews, Glasgow, and no appeal was made. On October 7, 1807, the following motion was carried. Quote, that the Presbytery are of the opinion that the use of the organ in the public worship of God is contrary to the law of the land, 
and to the law and constitution of our established church, and therefore prohibit it in all the churches and chapels within our bounds. Close quote. From McClintock and Strong's Encyclopedia under Organ. In 1829, the question was brought up in the Relief Synod as an organ had been introduced into Roxburgh Place Chapel in Edinburgh. The deliverance given by a very large majority was as follows, quote, It being admitted, and incontrovertibly true, that the Reverend John Johnston had introduced instrumental music into the public worship of God in the Relief Congregation, Roxburgh Place, Edinburgh, which innovation the Synod are of opinion is unauthorized by the laws of the New Testament, contrary to the universal practice of the Church of Scotland, and contrary to the constitutionary laws of the Synod of Relief, and highly inexpedient, the Synod agree to express their regret that any individual member of their body should have had the temerity to introduce such a dangerous innovation into the public worship of God in this country, which has a manifest tendency to offend many serious Christians and congregations and create a schism in the body without having first submitted it to the consideration of his brethren according to the usual form. On all these accounts, the Synod agree to enjoin the Reverend John Johnston to give up this practice, instanter, with certification that if he do not, the Edinburgh Presbytery shall hold a meeting on the second Tuesday of September next and strike his name off the roll of presbytery, and declare him incapable of holding office as a minister in the relief denomination. And further, to prevent the recurrence of this or any similar practice, the Synod enjoin a copy of this sentence to be laid before his session, and read after public worship to his congregation for their satisfaction, and to deter others from following similar courses in all time coming. Close quote. It is no reply to all this to say that the organ has forced its way into churches holding the Westminster standards. So it has. But the fact is established beyond all controversy that it was the intention of the framers of these standards to exclude the instrument, and that it was excluded and has only found admittance into these churches in every instance from that day to this by breaking down the walls of discipline as then set up. Number four. That exclusion of the organ was the intention of the framers of our testimony is evident from the fact that it has always been interpreted in that way. Even if we had no constitutional law on the subject, the position of the church would be placed beyond all controversy by her judicial procedure. While as far as I know, there has been no test case of discipline in our church caused by infraction of the rules or uniform practice, as in these cases referred to, yet there have been judicial interpretations of the church's position. For instance, the terms laid down by the Synod as to the condition upon which she would become a member of the Pan-Presbyterian Alliance, and the action of the Synod in 1897 on the request of the United Presbyterians for the young people of our church to join them in their convention. Our position was then affirmed and reaffirmed in 1898. The action of the Covenanter Convention, held in Glasgow, Scotland in 1896, representing the Covenanter churches of all the world, sustains the same position. It declares, quote, that the simplicity and spirituality of Christian worship and conformity to the will of Christ require the singing of these psalms to the Lord with grace in the heart and forbid everything that tends to sensuousness or to the excitement of merely natural emotion, as we believe the use of instrumental music in the praise service does. Close quote. 
This is an express declaration that it is the position of this church in all lands that instrumental music in the worship of God is forbidden by the law of Christ. Part 2. A convincing argument against instrumental music in worship may be drawn from the consensus of opinion of many of the most pious, scholarly, and successful servants of Christ in all ages. These are collected in a tract entitled Voice of the Ages Against Instrumental Music in Worship, published by the Committee on Testimony Bearing. It embraces such names as Justin Martyr, A.D. 150, Clemens of Alexandria, A.D. 190, Cyprian, A.D. 240, Christosom, A.D. 396, Isidore, A.D. 620, Thomas Aquinas, A.D. 1250, Erasmus, 1516, Cajetan, 1518, Beza, 1519, Calvin, 1545, John Knox, 1560, James Renwick, 1687, and among modern authorities, Dr. Adam Clark, Charles Spurgeon, Dr. Arthur L. Pearson. Again, the consensus of the opinion of those men many of the most pious, scholarly, and successful servants of Christ in all ages against instrumental music. Part 3. The arguments used in favor of instrumental music in the worship of the New Testament Church. Number 1. The argument from the Psalms. This is the most plausible argument used for the instruments. It is often presented with great confidence, but it will not stand weighing in reply to it, it is sufficient to remark, first, that psalm-singing churches generally exclude the instruments, and hymn-singing churches generally use them. In the apostolic church, neither hymns nor instruments were used. In the Roman Catholic church, both were used. In the Reformed churches, both were again excluded. Now both are forcing their way back into the Presbyterian churches on both sides of the sea. On the supposition that the Psalms furnish a sound scriptural argument for the use of instruments, it is impossible to account for the fact that when instruments come in, the Psalms are invariably thrust out, and vice versa. Secondly, if the Psalms authorize the use of instruments, then they command it. This is more than the advocates of the instruments want. They do not undertake to say that the churches which oppose the instruments are corrupting the worship of God and disobeying the law of Christ. Thirdly, this argument would require the introduction of the whole temple service into the New Testament worship. The Psalms refer to sacrifices and altars and incense and the ministry of priests, just as they do to the employment of musical instruments. Two, the argument for instruments from their use under the Old Testament. Again, one argument used in favor, of, in favor of instrumental music in the worship of the New Testament church is their use under the Old Testament. The answer to this has been given previously. To summarize, one, in the Old Testament, they were then used by divine command. Two, their use was discontinued by the same authority. 3. The New Testament contains no warrant for them. 4. They are contrary to the spirit of New Testament worship. 5. 
the example of the apostolic church is conclusive against them. Number three, the argument from the scriptural principle that we are to serve God with the best. Dr. Timmons says, yes, with the best, but not with the best of the swine. The scriptural answer is, first, God is the only judge of what is best in his worship. Secondly, God says the service of obedience is best. When Saul saved the best of the flocks of the Amalekites for sacrifices, he put it on this ground, to obey is better than sacrifice. Fourth argument. If we use church bells and tuning forks, we may also employ fiddles, horns, and organs. The answer to this is twofold. One, church bells correspond to those instruments used for calling the assemblies together and not to the instruments used in worship. Secondly, bells and tuning forks are silent when worship begins, and so should all other instruments be. The fifth argument. The argument from the Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 6. This section reads, quote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing is at any time to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. The clause in this section, which the advocates of the instrument grasp at, after the manner of the drowning man and the straw, is this. Quote, that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. The answer to this argument is, first, instrumental music is not a circumstance common to human actions and societies. It is therefore excluded by the terms of the confession. Second, the circumstances referred to are such as a, a time of meeting, B, a place of meeting, C, an order of exercise, D, the length of time to be employed. These and such like circumstances are common to human actions and societies, and these are left to be determined by the light of nature and the general rules of the word. But no kind of mental ledger domain can place instrumental music as used in the worship of God in that category. Thirdly, instrumental music in worship was not treated as a circumstance, left to the judgment of men, it was introduced by the command of God and done away with by the same authority. And fourthly, the framers of the confession of faith never so interpreted it. Here I close this discussion. The rubric for New Testament worship is laid down by Christ himself when he says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth.
The arguments which I have placed before you in support of purity of worship seem to me honest arguments. God forbid that the controversial zeal of your youth should mar the spiritual melody in your hearts. Next chapter. Is the use of uninspired songs in the worship of God authorized? This from the Reformed Presbyterian Testimony, chapter 24, section 8. The book of Psalms, which are of divine inspiration, is well adapted to the state of the church and of every member in all ages and circumstances. And these psalms, to the exclusion of all imitations and uninspired compositions, are to be used in social worship. To show that the position of the church as thus formulated is scriptural is the matter now before us. First, that which is not commanded in the worship of God is forbidden. This proposition is fundamental to all discussions as to how God is to be worshipped. We have already proved it by, first, didactic statements of Scripture, secondly, striking Scripture examples, thirdly, the teachings of the Reformed churches, and fourthly, the Westminster Standards. The churches holding to the Westminster Standards, which have departed from this rule, seek to justify themselves by the Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 6, which we have just reviewed. There are some circum quote, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. In opposition to such interpretation regarding uninspired songs in worship, let it be observed, one, this does not speak of the worship of God, but of some circumstances concerning that worship. Two, that it does not speak of all the circumstances, but only such as are common to human actions and societies, which hymn singing certainly is not. Three, such an interpretation contradicts the explicit language of the Confession of Faith, where it treats specifically of religious worship, chapter 21, section 1. And fourthly, we have already discussed a full interpretation of this clause earlier in this discussion. The constant effort to use this paragraph of the Confession of Faith to justify the introduction of human inventions into the worship of God calls for this second reference to it, but shows a surprising paucity of arguments. Truly, the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than that a man can wrap himself in it. Secondly, the Psalms were given by inspiration and were appointed to be used in the worship of God in all ages. This proposition is not new and never has been denied by any branch of the Christian church. The Psalms have been thrust aside practically and denied a place in many church hymnals and when included in the collection are seldom used in worship. Yet the divine warrant for their use has not been called in question by devout and intelligent Christians. Firstly, the Psalms were given by inspiration. This is distinctly affirmed in Scripture. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2, David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. This claim is confirmed by the inspired writers of the New Testament, Acts 1, verse 16, quote, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. 
Acts 4, verse 25. Lord, thou art God, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the peoples imagine vain things? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. The writer quotes from Psalm, uh, Psalm 95, verse 7, and ascribes the words to the Holy Ghost. Quote, Wherefore today, if ye will hear his voice. When therefore men speak against the Psalms as being cruel, vindictive, and unfit for Christian worship, they are speaking against the Holy Ghost, and are perilously near to the commission of that sin which has no forgiveness, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. 2. Objections to the doctrine that the Psalms are inspired. Firstly, first objection. The Psalms were not all written by David. How then do we know that the other writers were inspired? Answer A. The Psalms were collected into a book. Those of other writers intermingled with the Psalms of David. B. The book of Psalms is quoted as of divine authority. Luke 20, verse 42. And David himself saith in the book of Psalms. This is Christ's endorsement. Acts 1, verse 20, It is written in the book of Psalms. This is Peter's endorsement. Acts 13, verse 33, As it is also written in the second Psalm. This is Paul's endorsement. Answer C, The book of Psalms is recognized by the whole Christian church as an inspired book. It always has held its place in the canon of Scripture. Second objection to the doctrine that the Psalms are inspired. Two, it is objected that the metrical version is not inspired. Answer. The metrical version is inspired in the same sense that the prose translation is inspired. The enemies of an inspired psalmody in their eagerness to cast odium on the psalm book frequently refer to it as Old Roos. Dr. John W. Bain, in the little volume titled God's Songs and the Singer, says, It is often said that we contend for the exclusive use of Roos's version. It is perhaps scarcely worthwhile to deny this assertion. No amount of denial or any other evidence seems to make any impression on those who assert it. If anyone will take the trouble to examine the history of the Westminster Assembly issued by the Presbyterian Board of Publication, which should be good authority on the subject, he will find that the version we use was in the hands of a committee of that assembly for two years, and much pains taken in revising it. It was then sent to Parliament and then over to the Scottish General Assembly. It was nearly five years in the hands of two able committees of that assembly and the presbyteries of that church, undergoing a most searching examination and revision, and was in 1649 adopted as the assembly's version, translated and diligently compared with the original text and former translations, more plain smooth, and agreeable to the text than any heretofore. Close quote. Those who speak in contempt of this old ruse reveal their ignorance of its history and their disposition to be unpleasant at the same time. On the other hand, it is folly for the advocates of the exclusive use of an inspired psalmody to treat the matter of a change of versions of the psalms as though it involved the question of the use of uninspired songs in worship. What our church contends for is the exclusive use of the Psalms of the Bible in the best version obtainable. When she has that, she has an inspired psalmody. Thirdly, these Psalms were appointed by God to be used in his worship. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30, quote, Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with, with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. 
First Chronicles, chapter 16, verse 9, quote, Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him. Psalms 95, verse 2, quote, Make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. James 5, verse 13, quote, Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 19, quote, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3, verse 16, quote, Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever differences of view there may be as to the hymns and spiritual songs spoken in the last two package, passages, all agree that the word psalms means the psalms of the Bible, so that we have the divine warrant and command, both in the Old Testament and in the New, for the use of the inspired psalms in praise to God, and just as explicitly in the New Testament as in the Old. 3. The scriptures contain no warrant for the introduction of uninspired compositions in the worship of God. So far as the Old Testament is concerned, this seems to be universally conceded. But there are passages in the New Testament which have been confidently re relied upon as containing such authority. First, the hymn which Christ and the Apostles sang at the Last Supper consisted of psalms. Matthew 26, verse 30, And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. First, the margin reads psalm, when they had sung a psalm. Second, the biblical authorities generally agree that this was the great Hillel, composed of Psalms 113 to 118. Through 118, excuse me. A. Albert Barnes, after referring to the Jewish custom of using these psalms on such occasions, adds, there can be no doubt that our Savior and the Apostles used the same psalms in the observance of the Passion. B. Adam Clark says, As to the hymn itself, we know from the universal consent of Jewish antiquity that it was composed of Psalms 113 to 118. C. Lang translates it, And when they had sung the hymn of praise, and adds the second part of the Hillel, Psalms 115 to 118. Bengal says, they either sang or recited Psalms 113, 114, 115, 118, 136, in which the mystery of redemption is nobly expressed. You will find the same view in Lightfoot, Alfred, Meyer, Jacobus, Gill, and a multitude of others. Whoever appeals to this passage as supplying a warrant for modern hymn singing evinces a complete vacuity of the subject. This is the only instance in which we have a count of our Savior singing, and in this case, he set the seal of his approval upon the songs which he himself had provided for his people by inspiration of his spirit. If we wish to follow closely in the footsteps of our Lord, we must sing psalms exclusively. Jesus did. Number two, the passages Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, which speak of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, contain no warrant for the use of uninspired songs. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is the crucial text on this subject.
Those who favor the use of hymns interpret this passage as including, in the matter of praise, uninspired compositions. I believe that it contains a distinct command for the continued use of the Old Testament Psalter in the New Testament Church. First, all authorities agree that the Scripture Psalms are included. This is a very important concession, because it shows that those who have excluded the Psalms have done so in the face of repeated commands in the New Testament to continue their use. It also sweeps away at one stroke the oft-repeated objection that the Psalms are not suitable for use in the Christian dispensation. Two, the three names, Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs, are all found in the titles to the Psalms, in the Hebrew and in the Greek Septuagint. The Hebrew words are mizmor, Tehillah and Shir. The Greek words Samos, Humos, and Ode. And the English words Psalm, Hymn, Song. The word Samos occurs 69 times. The word Humnos, 6 times. And another word, Alleluia, of the same meaning, 20 times. The word Odias, singular ode, occurs 34 times. With the fact before us that these three words are all found in the title to the titles to the Psalms, and that they occur many times, and that they were found in the Septuagint in use among, amongst the Greek Christians to whom Paul wrote these two epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, and that all are agreed that Psalmos refers to the Psalms of the Bible, is it not most unreasonable to insist that the other two words, humnos and odes, mean uninspired songs? That the songs are the songs of inspiration is placed beyond all doubt by the qualifying word spiritual. And grammatically it applies to the psalms and hymns as well as to the songs, i.e. psalms, hymns, and songs spiritual. Thayer, in his Greek lexicon of the New Testament, referring to this passage and the similar one, Ephesians 5.19, defines the word spiritual as, quote, divinely inspired and so redolent of the Holy Spirit. Albert Barnes, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 10.3, says, quote, excuse me, Albert Barnes, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 10.3, which reads, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, says, Quote, the word spiritual is evidently used to denote that which is given by the Spirit of God, that which was the result of his miraculous gift, that which was not produced in the ordinary way. Again, the word spiritual must be used in the sense of supernatural, or that which is immediately given by God. Hence, spiritual songs are songs produced in a supernatural manner those given immediately by the Spirit of God. This view is sustained by many of the ablest and most scholarly divines the Church has produced, including Owen, Calvin, Beza, McKnight, Bloomfield, Horn, Durham, Bengal, and others. Thirdly, the Psalms are, in a preeminent sense, the Word of Christ. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you and in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, this is the condition of being able to teach and admonish. 
A, Christ by his Spirit is the author of them. This was proved previously. B, in many of the Psalms, Christ is the speaker. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Psalm 40, verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Such psalms as these are the word of Christ in as real a sense as the Sermon on the Mount is his word. See, Christ is the subject of many of them. The inspired writers frequently quote from the psalms and apply the language to Christ, e.g., Acts 4.25 and 26, Ephesians 4.8.9 and 10, Hebrews 1.5 through 12. B. Christ quotes from the Psalms and applies them to himself. Matthew 21, verse 42, Matthew 22, verses 43 and 44, Luke 24, verse 44, where he says, In the Psalms concerning me. Number four, no other book in the Bible reveals Christ with more fullness than does the book of Psalms. Note some particulars. Firstly, his divinity. Psalm 45, verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Compare with Hebrews 1, verse 8. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. Compare this with Matthew 22, verses 42 to 45. Number two, his eternal sonship. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the decree. Compare this with Hebrews 1, 5. Number three, his incarnation. Psalm 8, verse 5. The bonus section on this tape regarding exclusive psalmody stops here as there's not enough room on the tape to continue. The full edition is contained in the printed material found on Stillwater's Revival Books website at swrb.com. Thank you. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.